following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Thank you. Please turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 is page number 838, if you're using the Bibles there in the seat in front of you. While you're turning, let me uh, just say... Uh, thanks to Chris for preaching for me while I was gone a couple of weeks ago, and I'll apologize to you personally for not telling you that we were going to be gone. I think he said this, but uh, the situation was we were trying to do a surprise vacation, so we were keeping it on the lowdown, and therefore I didn't want to say anything publicly here in case the kids heard, but we went to uh, Williamsburg for a week, and then we came back just for Saturday and then went out to central Virginia to Farmville area where Debbie is from and spent a, a few days out there with her and Nick and Grace had a lot of fun so about a about 10 days total we were pretty much gone and really enjoyed it so thank you for uh, letting Chris speak to you and thank you uh, thanks to Chris for speaking you're in Mark chapter 3 we're going to read verses 13 to 19 and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer this morning as we begin our time together in the word Mark 3 begins Mark three thirteen begins like this and he went up on the mountain And called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus, we do come this morning and praise you for the mighty power of the cross. It is the mystery that binds us together and that ultimately binds us to you. And so we worship you this morning, praise you. We thank you for your word, for your grace and mercy even to speak to us through this. You you did not have to reveal yourself to us. You could have left us here not certain of who you are or why we're here or what your plan is, but you chose not to do that. And so we affirm this morning that your word is truth and that what it says to us is true. And we're surrounded by a world of lies, but this source is true. It is absolute truth. And so we come together this morning to study it, not just because we like ancient literature, but because this is our only source of truth. And so this morning, Father, as we continue our study here of the apostles, I just pray that you'd speak to us, that your spirit would work in our hearts, even as we look at these details of their lives, help us to see the power of the gospel at work in them and in us. And Lord, I pray that through this, we will appreciate the gospel and you more than when we walked in this morning. Continue to change us to be more like Christ, we pray through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So on our vacation recently, I uh, saw two things that didn't quite seem right to me. And before I begin this, let me just say, I, I feel like I do this a lot where when I'm out and about, I run into things that humor me, and so I take pictures of them, and I come back and show you the things that I found that made me laugh. Um, and at some point, you're going to stop believing that I actually find all the things I find, because 
I think I'm just weird, and so I notice weird things around me, but I promise you they're all true, and these two things showed up on vacation, and I wanted to share them with you. The first thing I saw that, that just didn't seem right were two flavors of soda here at the With Candy Store in Merchant Square. Bacon soda and buffalo wing soda, and if that's not bad enough, I don't know if you can make it out, but right above each of those it says artificial bacon soda, because we wouldn't want real bacon soda flavored you want artificial bacon soda, not baking soda, bacon soda flavor. When I saw this, I instantly instantly thought of a, of a joke picture I saw years ago. I'll show it to you here. It's Doritos flavored scope. You ever seen this picture? You know, you, the flavor you have in your mouth after you eat Doritos like coats everything and that horrible breath that lasts forever. Can you imagine swishing that through your teeth on purpose. I saw that picture years ago and thought it was so funny. And then I walked into the store and there's this and I'm going, oh, yuck. That has to be gross. That doesn't, that doesn't seem right. The other one, I have to give credit where credit's due here. This one goes out to Nick. Is Nick in here? There he is, Nick Skirty. We, uh, Nick and Hannah and I were driving to Walmart. This is we're in uh, Farmville. So this is Williamsburg, but we're in Farmville a couple days after that. And we're driving down the road down Main Street there in Farmville, and he points at a building, which I'll show you in a moment, and he tells me something about this building. And i I got to be honest with Nick, I didn't believe him. I, I thought he was trying to, to pull my leg, I thought he was trying to play a joke on me, but he was so adamant and so sincere that he was telling the truth that I said, fine, on the way back, I'll stop, and we'll check this out. And if this is legitimate, I am so getting pictures of this because you won't believe it. It's got to be one of the worst things I ever saw, but this has to yeah. <laughs> This has to do with a service that's provided by the very regal Carl U. Eggleston Funeral Home there on Main Street in Farmville. If you need any funeral services, I'm sure they'd be willing to help you. Uh, This funeral home has everything you could possibly want out of a funeral home. They have affordable funerals, right, because if you've ever had to deal with that, you know how expensive they are, so they they advertise their affordability. They have ample parking because sometimes parking is a problem. They have a large chapel. All of these are great. None of them are the number one selling point because the number one thing they want to advertise to you is drive-by viewings. (laughs) See, you're like me. I I don't even know what to say to this, right? He's telling me this, and I'm like, that is not true. There is no funeral home in America that offers drive-by viewings. He's like, no, that one does. We saw it years ago. And so on the way back, I pull in, and this is the sign outside of the funeral home, just like the, that kind of sign. And so I'm like, oh, my goodness. So I, I pull around the back of the building and come around, and here, there's no one in here. They have a display up. You can't tell. Maybe you can, but the, the coffin is on a slight tilt. So you can see, there's actually a car parked in front of it. I had to get out and take a picture. So, so the rest of the day, I'm like mulling this over, right? And I'm thinking, no, if, you've ever, if you've ever dealt with a funeral, like I remember when my dad died, like everything is like nickel and diming you, right? It's like, do you want the lights on in the, in the funeral? Okay, that's going to be another $30. Do you want this? It's another 20 another 100 200 whatever. So I'm like, this is a service you probably have to pay for. So I'm like, what, what like thought process is going through the family's mind when they're like, man, we love grandma. A lot of other people didn't, though. We should do the drive-by viewing. Like, or, or like you're thinking, like, we don't want everyone to come in, so we'll choose the people we like the least and send them an invitation to come between the hours of 6 and 9 after they stop at Sonic to get their slush. 
Like, how would this work? And if you're the family on the other, if, like, you want to go pay your respects, are you thinking, like, I like them, not that much? Like, I just was so dumbfounded by this. I couldn't believe that this was true because that's just crazy. That's not, that's not right. Well, I, I show you this, all the funny pictures I have from vacation, though. I think that last one there is worth, that's a doozy. That's worth, uh, that's worth like, multiple vacations right there, just in and of itself. Uh, I, I show you those because what I'm going to do today may not seem right at first, but I promise you it, it's, it's, the right, uh, it's the right course of action. It's for the best. As most of you know, we've been working through Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19 here, looking at these 12 men that we read about just a moment ago to understand who they really are. And we know them as the apostles, or more commonly as the 12 disciples, but let's be honest, outside of that, just knowing that they're called the apostles or that they're called the 12 disciples. We don't know a whole lot more about most of those guys. In fact, I would love to give us a pop quiz right now, but I won't to see if you could even name all 12 of them. And so what I've been trying to do over the last few weeks is kind of broken up by some other things that have been going on, Easter and such, and me being gone. I've been attempting to introduce us to these men so we could just know a little bit more about who they are so that as we're running into them throughout the story, throughout the Gospel of Mark, we kind of get what's going on in their lives and why they're doing the things that they do. And we started that by looking at, at Peter and Andrew, two brothers, both from Bethsaida, who moved to Capernaum. They're fishermen. You know Peter super well because he is the most vocal, best known of the apostles, right? Outside of Jesus, he's the one who speaks the most in the Gospels. You see him ask the most questions. You see him doing the most things. So he's the guy we all instantly think of as first, and he's always listed first in the group of 12. He does have a brother who's not as well known, but it's still kind of a a main character throughout the Gospels because you see Andrew doing things, saying things, Stuff is happening in the Gospels, and Andrew's there. So we looked at those two guys and what happened to them. Uh, The next week that we came to this, we looked at James and John. Again, two more brothers, two more fishermen there in Capernaum. And we tried to understand a little bit about their background as well. Their father's name is what? Oh, such confidence. Their father's name is what? Zebedee. Thank you. Zebedee is their father's name, and he seems to be a man of some prominence, right, because he's often listed, or they're just identified as being sons of him. Uh, He's probably a little bit wealthy. I don't want to exaggerate or uh, guess too much, but he probably is a man of some means, and apparently he's got some connections to the high priest as well, because James and John know the high priest. Uh, It's potential that James and John are cousins of Jesus. You remember that? We talked about it. And please, let me just, let me go back to that point for a moment and just make sure you understand something. I said that they are possibly cousins of Jesus. So please don't go out and say, I learned that James and John are cousins of Jesus. I, I never said that. But as you put the evidence together in the Gospels, that is a possible outcome or reality of, of what you find there. Excuse me, that they're cousins of Jesus. Whether they are or not doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything about them, but it's an interesting fact that we find. Jesus calls them Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and we don't exactly know why he calls them that. You remember that? We could be because of their personalities, because here they are in Samaria, and a, a town won't accept Jesus to uh, stay there for the night, and so what's their solution to that? Call down fire from heaven to burn the town up, because that's just the normal response that you would have if you can't get a hotel room either. Uh, they, they later try to get seats on either side of Jesus in the kingdom. 
It's interesting, talking about James specifically, that, that when Herod wants to make the Jews happy, he kills James first, not Peter, which, again, is just weird unless James is a real pain in the butt for them, right? If that's who he is, the kind of guy he is, then that might make sense as to why James is the first one martyred. He's the only apostle who we know how he died for sure because it's listed in the scriptures. John, of course, his brother lives to be an old man, probably dies of old age. We know a lot about John because he wrote the gospel. He wrote three epistles and he wrote the book of Revelation. And so there's a lot more information about him. So, so that's, what we, that's what we've learned so far. And, and just think about that pattern for a moment. We spent one week looking at two apostles. Then we spent a second week looking at two more apostles. And so it only makes sense that today we're going to spend one more week looking at all remaining eight, right? Yeah. That's why I say it may not seem right, but I, I, I'm assuring you that it's for the best because while there's a lot of material about those first four guys, once you get past John, you're really stretching to find a lot of information about who these guys are, where they're from, what they did, what happened to them afterwards after Jesus ascended back into heaven. And so while I could try to do an entire message on Thaddeus, for all of our sakes, I'm not, okay? We're going to put them all into one message, which means that, and this is your my disclaimer, my warning to you, today's going to feel a little disjointed because I've got no easy way to tie these guys together except for the fact that they're all apostles, okay? That's my one tie. But we're going to work through each of the remaining eight guys. I'm going to show you a little bit about their background, a little bit about their calling to be an, a follower of Jesus if we know anything about it, a little bit about any other times they show up in the New Testament, if there's anything to show, and then what little we may know about what happened to them later on, again, if there's anything to show. So, understand the plan? Number one, let's look at Philip. Philip is the next of the 12 that we're going to look at here. And in terms of his background, we know one thing about him, and that's pretty much all we know about him, is that he's from Bethsaida, the same town that Peter and Andrew are from, and that he may have been a fisherman, not necessarily with them, but at least like them, okay? That he, he, there's some evidence in the New Testament that may have been his occupation. The only other thing we know about Philip's background is that the name Philip is a Greek name. It's not a Jewish name. And he's the only one of the 12 apostles who doesn't have a Jewish name. Now, he is Jewish. That is clear from the New Testament. But he's got a Greek name. And so the question is, why? And the answer, I think, is probably that his family must have been one of what's called the Hellenistic Jews. That Hellenism was the, the influence of the Greek world on the, on the larger culture around them. And while most Jews did not embrace Greek culture, apparently Philip's family did. Because Philip always and only goes by his Greek name, never his Hebrew name. In fact, we don't even know what his Hebrew name was. He only goes by his Greek name. And there's some other things later, which I'll show you, that may end up helping uh, uh, confirm some of that. But that's all we know about his background. In terms of, of his calling, everything we know about his calling comes from John chapter 1, really verse 43, where we see that, that Jesus goes and follows, or excuse me, goes to Galilee and finds him. And, and, and I won't, uh, or did I put this up here? Yeah, there it was. Sorry. Couldn't remember if I had that up here or not. But here's what John says about that. The next day, Jesus decides to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. This is the only time where you see Jesus, it seems to be purposely seeking someone out, which is kind of interesting. 
he goes there maybe specifically to get Philip, and he tells Philip to follow him, and then Philip in turn goes and finds Nathaniel uh, or Bartholomew and tells him that they found the Christ. Apart from this, Philip doesn't show up a whole lot in the rest of the Gospels. He, he shows up three times specifically, and John is the one who records all three of the appearances. In John chapter 6, verses 5 and 7, and I'm not going to put these up here because if I did, it would slow us down, and I, I want to move through them quickly. But in John chapter 6, verses 5 and 7, we see the story of the feeding of the 5,000. So they're out there in the, in the field, and they've got all these people, and it's just 5,000 men, so we don't know how many people total are there together. But, but John tells us that Jesus says specifically to Philip, what are we going to do to feed these guys? And, and John then puts in a parenthesis, basically, and he says, this he did to test him because he already knew what he was going to do. And so Philip now, being posed this question, says back, to Jesus, well, even if we had 200 denarii worth of money, we couldn't, we couldn't feed all these people. And a denarii is about a, a day's wage for a laborer. So this is about $25,000 in today's money. So here's, here's Philip going, hmm, quick in math, this huge crowd, if we had $25,000 cash in our pockets right now and a McDonald's on the corner, we wouldn't have enough to, to feed this crowd. He's, he's quick in thinking about it. Of course, Jesus already knows what he's going to do. And Andrew then comes along and brings the boy with the fish. And Jesus performs this miracle. Something about, about Philip here is not necessarily pessimistic, but it is clearly too realistic. He, he sees a situation that is impossible by any human perspective. And so he is effectively giving up in advance, not even thinking that Jesus may be might do something amazing here in front of him. So I don't, you, you wonder what Philip really believes about Jesus at that point. You see him a second time in John chapter 12, verses 20 to 21, when some Greeks come and they want to meet Jesus. And, and who do they come to when they want to meet Jesus? Well, they come to Philip, which again makes more sense if, if in fact Philip's family is Hellenistic and, and they're, they're very open to Greek culture and Greek thought. The Greeks come to Philip Philip says, oh, you want to see Jesus? Let's go find Andrew. Which, you know, you think, why? Is, is Andrew the appointment secretary for Jesus? You know, there's no reason why he should take him there, but for some reason he feels unsure or uncertain about what he should do in this situation. So he goes and gets Andrew, and then Andrew's like, he's sitting over there. <laughs> Andrew and Philip then take the Greeks to Jesus to introduce him. Philip, again, he comes across as an a way you wouldn't quite maybe expect of him here. The third time is the worst of all of them in John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. This is Jesus in the upper room. And he's, Judas has left. This is his last time speaking to the, to the 11. He's going to teach them a, la, a final few things. He's talking to them about his death, about his resurrection, about him being the Messiah. And all of a sudden, Philip raises his hand there in verse 8 and says, Hey, uh, Jesus, could you show us the Father? Could you show us God before you go? And Jesus is like, really? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's still, at this point, Philip doesn't understand, and so Jesus chides him here as they're sitting around that table where they just observed the first a communion, okay? He chides him that I am God, and if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's, there's nothing left to see or to know. Philip doesn't get it. 
Despite these things, though, I don't want you to have a wrong impression of Philip because clearly he's a man of great faith. He's a man whom Jesus chose. And tradition tells us that Philip goes on to be greatly used in the spread of the early church and was probably one of the first uh, of the apostles to be martyred after James. One tradition says he died in Heliopolis, which is in Turkey today, eight years after the death of James, and he was used to spread the gospel throughout that region. So he fails. He makes mistakes, and yet he goes on and is used by God to preach the gospel. That's all we know about Philip. Uh, Number two, let's talk about Bartholomew here. You probably know this guy better as Nathaniel because Bartholomew is actually his last name. He is Nathaniel Bartholomew. Like you have Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. Here you have Nathaniel son of Tolmai. And it's interesting, pause, that men really haven't changed in 2,000 years because here Mark is listening out and he's calling guys by their last names. It's like, hey, what's up, Doucette? You know, what's up, Coba? Hey, what's up, Bartholomew? He calls him by his last name instead of by his first name here as he's listing him. But we know nothing about Nathaniel's background, nothing. We actually know very little about him at all. We, we do get to read about his calling in John chapter 1 because he's the guy that Philip goes and finds first after he meets Jesus. And when he goes and he talks to, to Nathaniel about this guy, Jesus, who's from Nazareth, you remember Nathaniel's famous question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, now, as he's saying this, you need to understand, and I've explained a little bit of this before, that Galilee as a whole is like the blue-collar region of Israel, right? Judea is the, the economic, political, cultural center, but, but Galilee is kind of the blue-collar area. I described it to you a few weeks ago as if, if Judea is town center and hilltop and Great Neck and downtown Norfolk, then Galilee is Pungo, okay? It's, it's not looked at the same way as, as Judea. But even within that region, Nazareth is looked at as like the armpit of, of Galilee. I'm from eastern North Carolina, an area not known for its high class of anything, uh, known for tobacco fields and pig farms and such where I'm at in Goldsboro, where I grew up in Goldsboro. But even in Goldsboro, in Wayne County, we made fun of the people who lived in Duplin County. That was the armpit of North Carolina because there I have first cousins who are married to one another. I do. Not a joke. Duplin County, the armpit of North Carolina, okay? Nazareth, the armpit of Galilee. So when, when Nathaniel hears that there's a guy named Jesus who's from Nazareth and that Philip thinks he's the Messiah, his response is like, <laughs> you're kidding. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I love Philip's response to him, well, why don't you come and see? And so they go and they find Jesus. And when Jesus finds him, he actually gives Nathaniel a compliment. He says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And think about this because this is, this is a compliment of, of epic proportions, I think. I would love to have Jesus say this about me because he calls him an Israelite indeed. That's not based on his blood. That's not based on the fact that, that he's a descendant of Abraham because everyone around him is a descendant of Abraham. Remember, to be a true Israelite, to be a true Jew, you not just have the blood of Abraham, you have the faith of Abraham. And so when he sees Nathanael and he calls him an Israelite indeed, this is a great compliment to him. And he also then says about him, in this man, there's no deceit, there's no guile, there's no double talk. What he says is what he thinks. There's, he's not being polite, he's not trying to be rude either, he's just, he says what he thinks. And when he said that about Jesus, can anything good, it's exactly what he thought about him at that moment. And so Jesus actually compliments for him and 
compliments him for that, excuse me, and, and, and Nathaniel asks, how do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. And at that point, Nathaniel also believes that this man, Jesus, is the Messiah. After that, he doesn't appear again until John chapter 21. Remember when Peter says, I'm going fishing. After the death of Jesus, after his failure, he goes back fishing. Nathaniel is listed as one of the people who goes with him. But that's all that's said about him. And church history suggests that he ministered in Persia, maybe even India, took the gospel as far as Armenia, but there's no real evidence of that or of how he died. So that's really all we know about him. Uh, Next one, Matthew. I won't spend much time on Matthew because we talked about him when we were in Matthew chapter 2, but I'll give you just a few details in case you weren't here for that. His other name is what? Levi. He is a tax collector in Capernaum, and he is the son of Alphaeus. That is all we know about his background right there. And again, remember to be a tax collector in that day is worse than being a leper because you are a traitor to your nation. You are a traitor to your people. You are helping the Romans fund the occupation of Palestine. And so when when Levi is called, it is scandalous. Remember we talked about that there in, in, in Matthew or Mark chapter 2. It's a scandalous thing. How how, why would Jesus ever call such a person as this? But he does. You read about that call in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. I won't repeat it here. But after that, he never again appears in the Gospels after his call. Silence. The only th- other thing we know about him is he wrote a Gospel. The Gospel of Matthew, mainly to a Jewish audience. And that tradition says he ministered to Jews in Israel and abroad before being martyred. That's it. Next, moving through him. See, Thomas. Thomas, the only thing we know about his background is he's also called Didymus or the twin. The word Didymus simply means twin. So he's got a twin brother or twin sister, who knows where. It could be Luke, it could be Leah. That was pathetic. Um, sorry, I'm a dork. So, so Thomas is called Didymus. He's called the twin. But that's all we know about his background. Uh, We know nothing about his call. We never get to see that. But we do see three times that Thomas appears. And I will be honest, I defended Thomas like a couple weeks ago, right? Or a few weeks ago when I was saying, stop calling him Doubting Thomas. You remember that? I still am affirming that. But the more you see about Thomas is three times, the more you're not going to be impressed by him. Number one is John chapter 11, verses 15 and 16. This is the story of the death of Lazarus. So, so. Jesus has just learned that Lazarus is dead. So he tells, starts talking to the, the apostles, hey, guys, we're going to go back to Bethany. Bethany is right outside of Jerusalem. Jesus has just recently had some problems here. And, and Thomas and the apostles are a little scared. They're scared for their lives. They're scared of being arrested. They're, they're fearful. But Jesus is like, we've got to go. I waited so that this would happen so that you could learn some things. And you've got to read John chapter 11, uh, verse 16, with the right voice, I think, to get the sense of this. And I'm going to try this for you. Are you ready? So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. That's my Eeyore impression, by the way. He sounds like Eeyore here. Well, if we're going to go, let's go so we can die too. Like he, there's... Whereas I said earlier that Philip isn't being very pessimistic. I think he's being realistic when he looks at the crowd and he's like, we can't feed this crowd. Even if we had $25,000, we couldn't feed this crowd. He's being realistic, lacking faith perchance, but he's being realistic of what he sees. Thomas just comes across as being pessimistic here. 
well, we're going to die. We might as well go do it now kind of thing. We're, we're going to go with him. Jesus, of course, reprimands him, and they go, and we see this miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead. But that's your first introduction to Thomas right there. Second introduction is, is John chapter 14, verse 5. Again, here in the upper room, and Jesus has just gotten done telling them, look, I'm going to go, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I've prepared that place, I'm going to come back and take you to myself. And when, when Thomas hears this, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Does he not know who he's dealing with? We, we don't have any idea what you're talking about, Jesus. Where are you going and how are we going to get there? And it's in response to that comment of Thomas that Jesus then says the line that we all know so well, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one gets to the Father except through me. You do know the way, Thomas, because you know me. So if you know me, you don't need to be fearful. That's his, his point there to Thomas as he responds to that question. Thomas just doesn't get it. And then the third time you see him is the one you all know so well. John chapter 20, verse 24. He's not there in the room the first time Jesus shows up. And when he gets back in later, they're like, Jesus was here. I don't believe it. Unless I can put my finger in the nail holes and my hand in his side, I won't believe. And Jesus comes back a few days later and Thomas sees it and falls to his knees. My Lord, my God, he has realized his error and Jesus forgives him and goes on. From there, we know actually a little bit more about Thomas than we do most of the others. He most likely, like pretty likely, went to India. You think about that in that day. It may be a big trip for me to go to India today, but, but I've got an airplane, and I've got, I've got easier ways of getting there. He probably goes to India because there are churches in southern India that have a tradition of Thomas being the one who started their church, and, and it seems to be legit. In fact, he's probably buried on a hill or in a hill just outside a city there in southern India. He takes the gospel out just about as far as it can be taken in his day, and he dies a martyr's death there in India. Next, James, son of Alphaeus. James, son of Alphaeus, his background, all we know is that he's a son of Alphaeus. Which, who else was a son of Alphaeus? You remember? Levi, Matthew. He's called Levi, son of Alphaeus. So here's the question. Are they brothers? Is there anyone in here whose dad's name is William? Anyone? Sheila? Sheila, daughter of William. I'm Stacy, son of William. Maybe we're brother and sister. So it doesn't matter that they have the same name. Their dad has the same name. They may or may not be brothers. They may or may not be related. We don't know. Just something that you should know about. Here's the interesting thing about James. We know nothing about his call. He makes no other appearances in the Gospels. And nothing is recorded about his death or what he did after the death of Jesus. We know nothing about him except his name. I'll come back to that at the end. Next, Thaddeus. Thaddeus is really not his name. You'll see this in a moment. His, his name is Judas, son of James. And for the life of me, I cannot figure out why he would quit using the name Judas after everything happened. But he, he stops using the name Judas for some reason. And he goes by this nickname, we think, because the name Thaddeus actually means breast child. Okay? There you go. Putting it out there. He's got another nickname as well, Lebius, which means heart child. So when you take those two together, heart child, breast child, 
it may be that he was the youngest in the group and the guys were giving him a hard time about still being a nursing infant, okay? Like that's like the point, which again shows that men haven't changed much in 2,000 years. Uh, and I love that that's the name Mark calls him by here. He's Thaddeus, not Judas, son of James. But, but that's what we know about him. He's possibly the youngest of the 12. We don't know anything about his calling to follow Jesus. And he only shows up one time in the Gospels. And again, it's around the, the Last Supper. It's John 14, verse 22, where, where Jesus has been talking about his kingdom and what he's going to do. And, and, and he actually asks a very, a very poignant question and one that I think we could know the answer to, but he clearly didn't. He says, Lord, verse 22, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? His question is, why is the kingdom unfolding like this? Why don't you like, grab a sword and let's go? Let's take it to the world. Why, why, why this way? And so Jesus answers that question, and it's a good one for them to understand. Tradition suggests he went up to Mesopotamia to a city called Edessa. Eusebius, a historian, says that the archives in Edessa contained records, which are all now destroyed, of how he healed the king of Edessa, a guy named Agbar, from some disease and, and planted the gospel up in that part of Mesopotamia, northern uh, uh, Asia Minor there, or West, Eastern Asia Minor, excuse me, and then he was clubbed to death for his faith. Next guy, Simon the Zealot. The only thing we know about Simon is his political allegiance. He's a zealot. And, and I told you when we talked about him briefly back in, in, in Mark 2, there's a real fine line between political activists and domestic terrorists, okay? There's somewhere in between, and that's kind of what the zealots were. On one, there's a spectrum of, of zealotism, I guess we could call it. And on one end, you've got people who are actively, politically seeking to overthrow the Roman rule of Palestine. On the other end, you've got people who say, politics don't work, but my knife does. And so they seek to kill and to sabotage and to do anything they can to thwart the Romans in their occupation. Where Simon falls on the scale, no one knows. But that he associates himself with it is clear because almost every time he's mentioned, he's referred to as Simon the Zealot. And I said, I, the only reason we talked about him before is because, remember, Jesus picks Matthew, a tax collector, a traitor, and he picks Simon the Zealot, a terrorist, basically. And he says, why don't both of you come along and we'll all proclaim the gospel together. And it's an interesting situation that just shows us how Jesus can take very diametrically opposed people and, and bring them together under the gospel. But apart from that, we know nothing about him again. Nothing about his call, nothing about anything he does, nothing really about his death. The only record that's there, and it may not even be true, is that he took the gospel to the British Isles. But, but we don't know if that's true or not, but that's the only thing that's recorded of him. Other than that, he's a, he's a mystery to us. And then finally, finally, we come to the last guy that we all know, right? Judas Iscariot. And it's interesting when you think about Judas, and you'll see this in a moment. We all think we know Judas, but I wonder how well we do. Judas Iscariot, the name Iscariot means he's a man of Kiriath, a city that's in, in Judea. So all the rest of the guys are, that we know anything about, they're all from Galilee up in the north. Judas is a southerner. He's from, he's from the, the political, cultural, economic center of Israel. He's from Judea in Kiriath. His father's name is Simon. We learn that in John chapter 6. But we don't know anything about how he was called, how he found Jesus, or how Jesus found him. We know nothing about that. The, the first time we ever really run into his activities and get some sense of who this guy is going to be is in John chapter 12, where we learn that he's the treasurer. 
And we learn this because he's the guy at the table that day when, when the woman comes to anoint Jesus with oil. We just talked about this last week. She comes and anoints Jesus with oil, and, and there's this murmuring about the waste. He's the guy murmuring. He's the guy who's saying, man, what a waste. We could have sold that ointment for 300 denarii, about $40,000, and given it to the poor. But, but John gives us this little snippet and says he didn't say that because he loved the poor. He said it because he was the money bag holder, and he liked to dip his hand into the bag, and he, he, he's, he's a thief. And I always wonder, how did they know that he was doing that? They apparently didn't know it at the time. Afterwards, they must have checked the balance sheet or something and saw things are missing. There's been some, some embezzlement here. They realize what's gone on, but, but he's a thief. That's the first indication you get that Judas isn't what he appears to be. You see it then obviously bigger and bolder in the betrayal because he is the one who actively goes to the priest, to the chief priest, and says, look, what do you pay me if I give this guy to you? They're not coming to him like, hey, hey, buddy, come here. You know, I've got a watch, and I'm looking for someone to betray Jesus. You know, what? It's not that kind of setup. He's looking for some money. And so he goes to them, and they say, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. And I'm like, if you're an embezzler, 30 pieces of silver has got to be like lunch money. But he's willing to give up Jesus for, for some lunch money. Here, 30 pieces of silver, and so he begins to look for an opportunity to betray him. And there on that night, as they're sitting around the table, Jesus begins to talk to the disciples about, one of you is going to betray me. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Am I the guy? No, no, no. Finally, Judas says, is it I, Lord? Jesus says, it's the one whom I give this bread to. He dips the bread and he hands it to Judas. And, And then notice this, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him that's a detail i think we forget in the story of judas i don't know if there's like a it's worse to be satan possessed than demon possessed but if it is that's judas satan enters into him and as soon as that happens jesus said what you're going to do go do quickly and he gets up and walks out and all the other guys are like he's probably going to get something for us you're like really They, they still don't understand that's how good judas is at his hypocrisy and, and, and the part I would love to know, and maybe we'll find out in eternity, is was Judas this way from the beginning? Was he always like that? Or did something begin to happen along the way? Where did his heart begin to turn? Where did he begin to, to make that shift from a follower of Jesus to someone who was going to sell him for 30 pieces of silver lunch money? What, where did this happen? We don't know, but he did it. They go to the garden. Judas meets him there with a, with a, a band of soldiers, and he betrays him there with a kiss. Uh, a very dramatic ending to his story. He then feels remorse, right? And, and John MacArthur, in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, he, did, he had a great section on this right here. He's like, there's a big difference between remorse and repentance. Do you understand that? We all can feel remorseful for our sin. I've known lots of unbelievers who feel a great deal of remorse for things they've done. There's a big difference, though, between remorse and repentance. Repentance is when you see the sin that you've committed against God, and you confess, you seek his forgiveness, and you turn from it. In remorse, you're not turning from anything. You're just sitting there feeling bad about what you did. It's guilt, pure, unadulterated guilt. We should feel remorse for many things we've done repentance is something far different 
And in that state of remorse, he goes out and hangs himself on a tree. And even in that, I'm not trying to be funny when I say this, but even in that he fails. Because the purpose of hanging yourself is to hang. But instead of hanging, the, Acts chapter 1 tells us that his body falls off the tree. And when it hit the rocks below, his, his intestines, his stomach was ripped open and all his bowels gushed out. Okay, it's a gruesome, gruesome ending to his story. And the money that he had betrayed Jesus with is used to buy a, blo- a field, called it the field of blood because of what he had done. That's your 12 guys. 12 men who we're going to be bumping into throughout the rest of Mark here as we work through it. What do we take away from these 12 men? And this is not just concluding today. This is kind of concluding the whole, the whole thing. What do we take away from these 12 men? Well, for the first 11, I want to make three, I think, really simple observations that were very convicting to me along the way here. Number one, that's Jesus can use different people. Because so often, if I'm being honest, my desire is to see people conform to my image. I want them to look like me and think like me and talk like me because clearly I am the best that Jesus has. And if they just can be more like me and, and think like me and act like me, then, then the, the kingdom will expand in far greater ways, right? Yeah. The goal isn't to get people to look like us. The goal is for them to look like Jesus. And here, even in the 11, you see Jesus take 11 incredibly different individuals and he uses them all in incredibly different ways to send the gospel out in all different directions. And so our goal in ministry isn't to have them look like us. The, the reality is Jesus uses different people and we need to embrace that. Number two, I would just note again, this is being purely repetitive, that apart from Jesus, these men are nothing, right? You get that? There's nothing special about them. Not the littlest thing. And if he hadn't come along, they would have lived the rest of their lives in obscurity. Lost in their sins, lost in everything. And yet, here comes Jesus, here comes the gospel. And he takes these 11 worthless men and turns the world upside down with them. That's crazy. That has nothing to do with them. It's the gospel at work. It's Jesus at work. And as we think of ourselves, we remember that we're not worthy of God's love. We're not worthy to be used. And yet, God can use us and use the gospel that is proclaimed from our lips to change the world around us. Number three, and this is specifically today, I want to strive to be one of the unknown ones here. It strikes me, 12 men, 11 men, several of which we know nothing about. Were they failures? Were, were they like the, the least, lesser apostles? And no, well, they, were, they didn't make it. They didn't do so good. Because if they had done a really good job, they would be well known, right? Because all we care about is prestige and popularity. And yet here's multiple men we know not the first thing about even the gospel writers their friends don't tell you anything about them what does that tell you tells you that men aren't important about jesus he's important that's what they were talking about is as the men come into play in the different stories they are included but outside of that they're not and i just thought man what do we want What what do you want do you want to be known as a minister, I, I, I used to. 
I really don't anymore. I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that like in a, I feel like you can't talk about this without it being hypocritical. But, but I genuinely think Cornerstone should never, Cornerstone's name should never be known. If nobody in Hampton Roads could tell you where Cornerstone is, that would be wonderful. And my name should never be known. And your name should never be known because there's only one name that we proclaim, and that's Christ. Do you believe that, like, for real? Or is there some part of your heart that's like, yeah, but wouldn't it be cool if, if, if we were this and I was that? And it's just like, oh, wouldn't that be great? No, I'm telling you, it wouldn't. One name. One name only. Not yours, not mine, not Cornerstones, not any other church. One name. That's the only name that should be known. And if we're going to strive for anything, it's for us to be the unknown ones. That's, that should be our goal. For Judas, a few observations here as well. Number one, he's a tragic example of a lost opportunity. How many of us would just, oh, if we could just be in that group, what a privilege. Judas had it and squandered it. Judas is is the epitome of wasted privilege. He had Jesus there beside him, in front of him. He walked with him and he talked with him. He could have asked him any question he wanted. He could have, and all of it was completely worthless to him. 30 pieces of silver is what Jesus was worth to Judas. And how many people will sit in seats like this this morning and they'll hear the name of Jesus and he won't even be worth 30 pieces of silver to them. He won't even be worth the, the app on their phone that they were checking in the middle of the sermon. And I didn't see anybody today, so you're good. All right. I've seen some people in the past. What a, what a tragic example of lost opportunity and wasted privilege Judas is. For so many of us, we would trade Jesus for the next thing that comes on our plate too. So we're really no better. Judas is a vivid demonstration of the deceitfulness and fruitlessness of hypocrisy because it's so easy to appear something on the outside. I am the the first and worst offender. It's so easy to put forth a a persona that looks good, but inside you're nothing. And if that's what we're pursuing, then folks, look at Judas' example. It doesn't lead to good places. I'm not trying to scare you or, or, or to, to be negative and, and down on you here. At the end. I'm just saying, look at him. He looked like one thing. He was really another. And we see where it ended. It ended in spiritual betrayal. What a danger. There are people around us who sit next to us, who are in our community groups. Could, could, we could see them and think they're believers and, and that they are part and parcel of the gospel and that they're with us. And, and then they... It all crumbles and it's all laid out. And we sit there and we go, how? Why? What? And we're confused. It's, it's Judas. It's the danger of hypocrisy, of spiritual betrayal. We should be careful of it. But I would leave us with this on Judas, that he is also the proof of the patient, forbearing goodness and loving kindness of God. Because Christ still loved him. You really Think about that. Christ loved Judas. He loved Judas knowing what Judas would do. He loved Judas despite all that was going to transpire. But 
kindness and patient forbearance of God. He loves all of us despite of our sin. And so you're here today and some sin in your past, some sin in your present is first in your mind. It weighs you down. Recognize that if Jesus loves Judas, he can love you too. His kindness, his patience, his forbearance, his loving kindness is new every morning. And for those of us who have been saved, who have been set free by the gospel, we're under no condemnation. We have no fear. There's nothing left that can be held against us and all we have is God's eternal love shown to us through the death, through the sacrifice of his son. And so if that thing is on your heart and you're a believer, um, not to quote the song, but let it go, right? <laughs> let it go, seriously. Jesus has paid for it. He's paid that price. He's paid the penalty, and there is nothing left to fear. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, then that hangs over your head. That fear you have is real. Don't ignore it. You bow your heads. Father, we come, we thank you what we've seen here in the study of the apostles, these are worthless, weak, foolish men, and yet you took them and turned the world upside down. And we're reminded this morning of the dangers of hypocrisy, the dangers of wasted opportunity. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in here today who has sat here, has heard the gospel, has, has heard about you, that they wouldn't waste this privilege, that they wouldn't continue to live in the hypocrisy of, of a false persona, but would recognize their need of you, that you would open their eyes, open their heart to see their true need, and that they would place all their faith in you alone this morning. Jesus, for those of us in here who are believers, Lord, please, please forgive us for being fearful of our sin and of of our failures, because Lord, you've forgiven it. You've paid it all. Help us to, to rejoice in the glory of that forgiveness. Father, I pray also then that as we go out and as we serve, that no one ever hears about us. Lord, please, may Cornerstone's name never be known. May our names never be known. Help us to live for one name, and that's yours. And so we give ourselves to you this morning. We ask your blessing on us as we go out as missionaries into the world around us. Help us to be faithful in proclaiming that name. It's in your name we pray.